Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is Exodus, week number one, an introduction to Exodus. Today, we start what I think you're going to find to be an exciting and eye-opening, I hope, spirit-filled adventure into the second book of the Torah, Exodus. And to set the table for what it is we're going to study together and where it's going to take us, I would like to spend this evening giving you an overview of Exodus and taking, talking a little, rather, about uh, the conditions that Israel lived under during the time between Joseph's death and the first mention of Moses. Now, the Hebrew name for the section of the Torah that we call Exodus is Shmot. Okay, Shmot. Shmot means names. Right? And certainly comes from the fact that the first words of the book begin with, these are the names of the sons of Israel. Now, just as a quick refresher, the first five books of the Bible are called in Hebrew Torah. It means teaching. It doesn't mean law. All right. And the Torah, consisting of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are what God gave to Moses on the holy mountain that we call Mount Sinai. Now, Genesis is often called the book of beginnings. That's beginnings, ending in an S, plural, several beginnings. In Genesis, we're not really so much told of the beginning of the universe, that is, that time when an incalculably vast nothing became something. It rather, to my way of thinking, Genesis is about the beginning of the environment God created to sustain mankind. Okay. And the beginning of that physical and spiritual environment that we read of in Genesis was but the first of several beginnings that we would be told about in Genesis and we studied together. Now, Exodus, Shemot, okay, is in many ways another book of beginnings. Okay. And it's the book of beginnings of a people who God elected and separated from all other people on planet Earth, the Israelites. And Yehovah established this set-apart nation on political and civil and religious levels. In other words, although the earth and the stars and animals and plants and mankind were all created in the earliest part of the creation story, God had not yet finished developing his divine work with these infants of creation. He didn't create and then just let everything evolve on its own without his further molding and shaping. Okay. Exodus, you're going to find, is entirely God-centered, God-focused. Okay. And Exodus establishes several important understandings about the very nature of the Lord, most of which, frankly, we're expected to already have digested before as disciples of Yeshua that we even begin to study the New Testament. 
In Exodus, for instance, we learn that, but, that there is but one God. And his name is yud Hey vav Hey. We can argue about how to pronounce it. Okay, but that's what we know at the very least. It's made up of the Hebrew letters yud Hey vav Hey. That he is the same God that appeared to the patriarchs as El Shaddai. That he is the creator of all things, but that he is not also above and not organically part of the things that he created. He is present and he is near. But his being is not the same substance as any created thing except in a small part for mankind. Okay. This, this God of Abraham is different than any of the pagan gods. His area of dominion is infinite. His powers are infinite. And yet, he constantly interacts with mere men. Okay. In other words, the God of Israel is deeply involved in human affairs. And in fact, uses human affairs to achieve a much grander purpose. And his grand plan involves the establishment of a nation of people that he's going to rescue, redeem, teach, nurture, and discipline. And that's Israel. So although... Israel, which was created in Genesis, was a separate and identifiable group of people. It was at the time of the last words written in the book of Genesis, still a fairly primitive form of people yet. Okay, God hadn't done too much yet to create that peculiar order of society that would make Israel separate and distinct from all others. Exodus is the place in the Bible where we see Israel advance from infancy to adolescence. Okay. It's where we see the beginning of Israel as a nation of people maturing from just a group of people. Okay. A nation with its own culture and laws, very well defined morals and ethics, its own history, its own land, and its own God who establishes these unchangeable morals and ethics and justice system that Israel is to live their lives by. Now we will early in Exodus be introduced to the principle of Passover that we only recently celebrated. And that first Passover, of course, was that great and dreadful night when God sent the final plague upon Egypt that caused Pharaoh to loosen his grip on God's people, and it was that plague that resulted in the death of every firstborn child all throughout Egypt. However, for those who followed God's instruction to paint the doorposts of their homes with the blood of a lamb, that death would pass by. That is, all of Egypt, all of its inhabitants, were placed under a death penalty for their rebellion against God. But God made provision for those and those alone who trusted him. And that provision was by means of the blood that was spilled from an innocent lamb. 
By that blood and that blood alone would they be saved. There was no other means. Here in Exodus, we couldn't have a more perfect picture in the entire Bible for the purpose of the future Messiah. Yeshua, Jesus the Christ. Now in Exodus, we will also be introduced to a new covenant. Now if you're paying attention to what I just said, your ears probably just perked up and said, what? What did he just say? Exodus, the new covenant? You see, terminology has an enormous impact on the way we perceive information. Okay? We have typically been taught that the Bible is based on two main divisions called the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay? Most everything in Christianity is based on the premise that there was this original set of rules and laws handed down to mankind by God, which was eventually replaced by a new and better set called the New Testament. Okay? And as Christians, Gentile evangelical Christians, it's been heavily implied that there's really little point to knowing more about the Bible than we can find in the New Testament. So the Old Testament is merely seen as ancient history or kind of a curiosity for academics and scholars. Now, those of you who graduated from the last 12 months of dissecting Genesis, hopefully are beginning to appreciate that most of the spiritual principles that have been generally ascribed as originating in the New Testament were already in operation. And we've already found them right there in the oldest book of the Oldest Testament. The point is this. We really need, at this point in our Christian lives, to relegate the terms Old Testament and New Testament to the waste bin of our vocabularies. We need to get rid of that. Okay? We have one Bible. Okay, One unified work and word of God. Just as God is one, Echad, so are our holy scriptures. You take away the Old Testament and we have half a Bible. You take away the New Testament, we have half a Bible. Okay, Half the Word of God. And you know, when we take away either half, it's not that we lose half the understanding. It's that most, if not all, of what we think we know is actually quite incomplete and skewed. Okay. Let me also point out that the New Covenant, hear me, that the New Covenant and the New Testament are not the same things. Okay. The New Covenant is proclaimed in the Old Testament. Okay. The New Covenant is a prophecy of yet and another series of covenants that God would make with men. Each covenant is necessary and important, and each covenant is still valid. Okay? The New Testament simply records that the New Covenant came about, and that Yeshua ben Yosef, Joseph, Jesus son of Joseph, our Messiah, who brings in the New Covenant by means of spilling his atoning blood, is the one that we were waiting for. Okay. Indeed, we will see that God also 
gives Moses a new covenant. Okay, Not the same covenant as what we typically call the new covenant. All right? But it was, for Moses, the latest in a series of covenants that the Lord established to bring about his will. Okay, The covenant given on Mount Sinai is that which Christians typically call the Ten Commandments or the Law. All right. Yet it consists, as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, of far more than ten basic laws. Okay. What we're going to also be introduced to in this newest covenant given to Moses is a new type of covenant. A conditional covenant. A covenant that is bilateral. A covenant that is based on man as well as God, each doing their part in this deal. A covenant that is mutual between man and God. This is an entirely different type of covenant than the covenant God made with Abraham some 600 years earlier than this new one. Because that covenant, which led to the establishment of what the Bible calls the line of covenant promise, was unconditional. The covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was unilateral. It was a one-way deal. It wasn't mutual. Okay? It all depended on God. Nothing man could do would cause God to pull back from that covenant or to change it because it was a promise from God to man. Okay. Now, this new covenant given to Moses on Mount Sinai in no way replaced the different and older covenant given to Abraham. It wasn't a newer and better model with all the latest bells and whistles. Right? It was simply another covenant entirely distinct in purpose and in nature from the one given to Abraham. Yet, just as the first half of the Bible is the foundation for the second, so is Abraham's covenant the foundation of the new one given to Moses. So the covenants of Abraham and Moses are different, but they're connected, just like the chapters of a book. Now, Exodus is a saga. It's a wide canvas painted with, a, painted with broad strokes. Okay, yet we must not think of it like we do of secular history. Because in Exodus, only events and mental pictures that illustrate and demonstrate divine principles and purposes are recorded for us to study. Okay, therefore Exodus doesn't give us a lot of details on happenings and places and people and cultures. It doesn't describe the magnificent and advanced society of Egypt, nor tell us much about Israel's time there. It doesn't give us precise information on the route of the Exodus. It doesn't tell us much about the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And except for explicit instructions on the building of the wilderness tabernacle and all the accompanying rituals of the priesthood, details are in very short supply. In Exodus, from the time of the close of the last chapter of Genesis to the beginning of the book of Exodus, as much as perhaps 350 years have passed in the turning 
of that page. Okay, silently. Just as though it didn't really suit God to even bother to tell us much about what went on then. Okay? Or it's as though God just forgot about poor Israel, languishing away in that heat and forced labor that had become their lot. And no doubt, the majority of those Hebrews in Egypt must have felt that way. Indeed, God has abandoned us. All right. Now, what I think you're going to come to see, however, is that what God did with Israel was to bake a cake. Okay. God carefully selected the ingredients to make Israel, then he mixed them until they were properly blended and next set the mixture into an oven to be baked. He set his heavenly timer for exactly the amount of time he knew was needed for this Hebrew cake to congeal and to raise and to become usable. 400 years. And he waited. And although he undoubtedly monitored this baking process, in general, there was really no need for substantial intervention on his part. The cake was going to remain in that oven until the timer went off. All right. Well, when God opened that oven, out popped Israel. Okay. And apparently, there was very little point of telling us all the details of what went on inside that oven. Okay. So the Bible contains almost nothing of those years. Now, the Torah presents us essentially with a pair of bookends, with the volumes in between those bookends missing. Okay? And this was a, a concerning what was apparently one of the most, if not the most, important purpose for God's determination that Israel would indeed spend a long time in Egypt. I mean, the first bookend of this we find in Genesis 46.3, because God tells Jacob... Fear not to go down into Egypt, because there I will make of thee a great nation. And that one book in stands alone until the next one occurs, shortly after the opening verses of Exodus, where it says, And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, and they multiplied, and they waxed exceedingly great, and the land was filled with them. Okay. God prophesied it, he declared it would be so, and it happened. Right. How it all happened may, have, may be of a lot of interest to us, but God was on a mission that his divine purposes would be fulfilled. Now perhaps some of those Israelites remembered, after all those centuries, that God told their forefather Abraham and later Jacob that Egypt was going to be their destiny for a time. And perhaps they reckoned that just as the prediction of their sojourn in Egypt and their population explosion had come true, so it would happen that at God's appointed time, as promised in Genesis 46.4, I will surely bring you back up again. Yet after three and a half centuries, long time. All right, in Egypt, with apparently very little input from God that we are aware of, how much would those Hebrews actually have remembered about those precious promises given their condition now as slave laborers? 
And more importantly, how much would they still trust in the one who had made those now distant promises? Trust him during a time while they lived amidst a culture that deified and worshipped beasts, that worshipped men and the sun and the moon and the stars, a culture that was completely preoccupied with life after death, and they knew nothing of God. See, the death culture of Egypt was probably one of the reasons that we see such a reticence on the part of Torah to even discuss death and the afterlife. The Old Testament never introduces a concept of dying and going to heaven. Did you know that? In fact, what happens after death is barely touched in all the Old Testament. And and when it does, it's the haziest of pictures. Egypt's religion was one of magnificent monuments and god images. The pyramids were but an elaborate burial chamber and self-contained kingdoms for the living of the afterlife of the elite. Therefore, Israel's religion became an imageless one in response to this. And the only authorized monument we'll find in Exodus was a modest tent structure built for God to dwell with his people. Unfortunately for us, Exodus opens by immediately cutting to the chase and tells us only in the broadest terms the condition of the Hebrews in Egypt. And in shorthand fashion... The verses of chapter 1 set the stage for God's upcoming battle with Pharaoh through Moses. But there are other sources of information of historical importance that exist about the Israelites' time in Egypt. That is, sources other than the Bible. And we are going to explore several items of interest that will make use of this information, including the elusive route of the Exodus, the location of Mount Sinai, the site of the Red Sea crossing, and a lot more things. Now, to best understand the book of Exodus and to comprehend not just what it says, but what it means in relation to the overall scriptural picture, we need to be able to stand back and look at it from a structural viewpoint. Because there are themes and patterns and logical divisions that emerge from Exodus that all work together to give us a good understanding of the formation and maturing of Israel as a nation. And understanding the contents of Exodus is key to understanding everything that follows in the Bible. Now, the noted Hebrew scholar or rather, the uh, Bible scholar Everett Fox says he sees six logical divisions within the book of Exodus. Now, let me state from the outset that just as the standard biblical divisions of Old Testament and New Testament, the 66 named books and all the number chapters and verses, all of these things are entirely man-made and of no spiritual importance. Okay, So it is that this concept of six divisions within the book of Exodus is all somewhat arbitrary. 
Okay? The purpose of these divisions is only to give our finite little brains a way to deal with the sheer volume of Holy Scripture. And what is it they say? How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Okay? And it's a much more efficient way to communicate amongst ourselves. Right? Communicating specific biblical passages as we study and discuss and search out God's Word. So according to Everett Fox's method, he sees Exodus's opening division, the first of six, as what he calls the deliverance narrative. That is, we're going to see God redeem his chosen people, Israel. And these first few chapters will review the circumstances and the methods that God used primarily through Moses and Pharaoh to allow this now enormous nation of Hebrews to leave Egypt at a time, by the way, when that's the last thing the Pharaoh wanted to see occur. Because this Pharaoh well knew right, that Israel leaving Egypt would be a devastating blow to his nation. Division two he calls the wilderness experience. It deals with the experience of Israel as a displaced horde of refugees. Right? Trekking across a barren wasteland immediately following their escape from Egypt. This beginning period when God would allow, would, 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 would show Israel just who he is. And that he's trustworthy. That he's holy. That he's just and he's not to be trifled with. Okay? And it, it would end with him showing them who they are in his sight. Right? as they march away from who they were back in Egypt. And then that leads us to Division 3, Covenant and Law, but what is more correctly called Torah, okay? whereby God starts to deal with the organizational structure of Israel itself, particularly societal and religious structure. Now, in Egypt, Israel was really just an appendage of Egypt. Okay. Now, however, they experience that first great governing dynamic of God that we discussed about a year ago. Division, separation, and election. See? Because Israel was in the process of being divided and separated and molded into a nation built in God's image and for service to him. And by means of God giving Moses the Torah, he also effectively gave Moses a manual for living. A manual for living for a redeemed people. A manual for living in harmony with God. Okay. Now, following along with the biblical theme of structure, Division 4 moves on, literally, into the structure, the instructions, the blueprints, if you would, for the building of a structure, all right, and setting up of a priesthood for service in that structure so that God would tabernacle, dwell among his chosen people, and that building structure is what we call the wilderness tabernacle. Okay? Since the wilderness tabernacle is but a, a physical model of a spiritual and heavenly place that would be followed hundreds of years later with the temple, we're going to be spending quite some time exploring the design of that tabernacle and the symbolism 
behind all those God-ordained rituals that the priests would perform there. Because both the design and the rituals are themselves prophetic. And it's going to help us to understand a lot that's really hidden from us in the New Testament if we don't understand this first. Now, next, after God has put forth his divinely, or, uh, divinely ordered structure, Division 5 shows a man respond to this by implementing their own structure. Just the way one would expect a fallen race's concept of structure might proceed. They construct a golden calf. Right? And in doing so, they're trying to return to their old and familiar ways of Egypt. Okay. And what follows is the terrible consequences. When a man rebels against God's system of order, engages in idolatry, and how God provides a much-needed pathway for reconciliation when man sins, rebels against such a just God. This division of Exodus, Mr. Fox calls, appropriately enough, infidelity and reconciliation. Now, the sixth and final division of Exodus concerns the actual construction of the wilderness tabernacle and then God's inhabitation of that divine structure. I don't think Everett Fox intended to make any analogies uh, by means of the way he appropriately, I believe, divided up Exodus. But it does give us an interesting tool to look at how God works and it helps us to visualize patterns that God develops and uses throughout the Bible. And we see this same God pattern emerge in our own lives as believers. Deliverance, wilderness experience, receiving the covenant, preparing the tabernacle, us, okay? that God, the Holy Spirit, might dwell in us, and of course, our inevitable infidelity against God due to the evil inclinations that are still a part of who we are. And then, his gracious provision for reconciliation, and finally, the completion and perfection of the tabernacle that's yet future. Now, beyond this structure, of Exodus, there are also certain words that God uses which give a beautiful unity to it all. Sadly, most of our modern English Bibles mask this unity to various degrees because these words are of Hebrew origin. And the way Hebrew words are used is quite different from English. I mean, we're going to find throughout Exodus the recurrence of the words see, glory, serve, and know. Over and over and over we're going to see these. English can make this a little harder to observe. And I want you to be aware and prepared as we move through Exodus to discover these word patterns. Okay? So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's take that recurring root word, serve, because it works better in English. It's going to change form 
and emphasis as we roll through Exodus. We're going to see the Hebrews move from servitude to the Pharaoh to service to God. Okay. When the Hebrews are given the Torah, they're warned against serving other gods. The Torah also specifies how the Israelites, as, as children of God, are to treat their own servants. All right. How they're to conduct service in the tabernacle and how God is to be served. All this from that simple word. Now, this example is neither contrived nor is it allegorical or just a slick literary style. It's very typical. Okay, I'm, I'm taking you on this kind of momentary detour to explain the significance of the unique and meaningful word structure of biblical Hebrew that takes a root word like serve okay, and then molds it and shapes it okay, within the scripture in a way that is particularly helpful for listening to it as a spoken word, absorbing it through hearing, and then memorizing it. Okay. These Hebrew word patterns are also most useful in helping us to connect the dots. Okay. That is, we can follow thought patterns of God as he weaves them and develops them in his creation in such a organic and intricate way, far beyond human ability to ever conceive. Now, one concept gets linked to the next, and then the next, and then the next, forming this amazing chain. Each tiny step is necessary, no matter how painfully long and drawn out it all might seem to us. And all this is done in the only way it can be done, in order for God to bring mankind from creation to the place of recreation and of perfect unity with him. Because this is what he desires and what he's going to do. Okay, And the foundation and structure of this divine plan in this unchanging pattern is fully laid out for us in Exodus. Okay? Let's move on. Now, I don't expect you to remember all that, only to make a mental note of it so that the light might come on from time to time as we spend the next, oh, I don't know, six months a year in Exodus. Now, since the Bible doesn't give us much information about the roughly 350 years that passed from the time of the Israelites entering Egypt until God starts preparing Moses to bring them out of Egypt, I want to spend a few minutes painting as accurate as a setting as possible for the opening scenes of Exodus. And this information I'm going to give you comes mostly from archaeological finds as well as Egyptian, Greek, and Roman historical records. Now, the first one to two centuries that the Israelites spent in Egypt were very prosperous for the Israelites. Right? All indications are that they lived comfortably and they lived peaceably. Right? They had been allotted by Pharaoh, thanks to Joseph, what was intended to be a permanent territory, perfectly suitable to their shepherd lifestyle up in the land of Goshen. Goshen was in an area of Egypt called 
lower Egypt, though it lay in the northernmost part of Egypt. Noph was the capital city of lower Egypt, and likely that is where Joseph was when he first dealt with his brothers who had come down to Egypt from Canaan to acquire some grain on account of the worldwide, or at least Middle Eastern-wide famine. But new evidence gathered by people who expected anything but what they discovered is that Joseph also had a palace in the city where so many of those Israelites would take up residence, Avaris. And this would seem most natural as Joseph would have wanted to be close to his father and his brothers, his Hebrew family members. And as might be imagined, not every Hebrew was a shepherd. They didn't remain a shepherd. Many took up building trades, learned no doubt from the Egyptians who excelled in architecture. Others became merchants, some became farmers. And again, they would have learned these occupations from some combination of the Egyptian nationals and the many foreigners they would have come in contact with since they lived in the very area that foreigners had to pass through to come to Egypt in the first place. Over time, many became expert farmers using the tremendous resources of the Nile to their advantage. More, and this is key, So many of the Israelites assimilated into the Egyptian culture to varying degrees. Through everyday dealings with the native Egyptians and through intermarriage, Israel and Egypt fashioned quite a connection. And along with accepting Egyptian culture, they began to adopt many Egyptian religious views and rites. Now, sometime around the halfway mark of their sojourn in Egypt, a sea change occurred and forever altered the lives of the Israelites. Beginning just a few decades before Joseph's arrival as a slave in Egypt, the so-called Hyksos rulers had established their dominance over most of Egypt, primarily Lower Egypt. The Hyksos were from somewhere in the Middle East. They were Semites. They were not Egyptians. They were cousins of Israel. Regardless of where they were from, it's key to understand these Hyksos rulers of Egypt were not Egyptians. They were foreigners, and the Egyptians detested being ruled by these men they called Shepherd kings. Now, their dominance ebbed and flowed at time making gains into Upper Egypt, which is to the south, and the territory territory that lay between Upper and Lower Egypt, and inevitably, of course, losing ground from time to time as well. But eventually, an Egyptian general in the capital of Upper Egypt, a place called Thebes, which became eventually known as Luxor, gathered an army of Egyptian nationals and defeated those hated Hyksos rulers once and for all. The Israelites would now become the focal point of nearly two centuries of bitterness that had been built up in the Egyptian people. The first job of this new king of Egypt 
the Egyptian king was to dismantle any foreign influence that could possibly threaten Egypt. And that meant gaining control over these Israelites who had grown into menacing proportions by now. Okay. Undoubtedly, they were the majority of people in that Nile Delta area up in the north. Okay. But they had spread out all over Egypt, established themselves. All right. So the solution was a rather tr straightforward and simple one for the new king of Egypt. Subjugate the Israelites. Make them into forced laborers. So for all practical purposes, we could say there was a complete and nearly overnight reversal of fortune for those Hebrews. The Israelites who had become wealthy and numerous and attained political clout in Egypt were dispossessed and became the lower class. The Egyptians who had been relegated to lesser status than the Israelites for so long were now in charge. Okay. Well, while the idea of slavery, of course, is detestable to us, that does not necessarily mean, other than for a complete loss of their freedom, that these slaves were necessarily poorly treated. Okay. In fact, most evidence is that except for the last few years in Egypt, they were treated decently. Okay. We, we, we should not think of the Egyptians as an inherently cruel and uncouth people. Okay. They were a high-minded people with deeply ingrained and refined morals and ethics. They were educated, intelligent, very forward-looking. Besides, what good was a maimed or a dead slave? Okay. Now, despite what Cecil B. DeMille all right, told the world in his famous remake of the Ten Commandments, the Israelites did not build pyramids. Okay, in fact, by the time of Jacob's arrival in Egypt, the pyramid building era was over. Okay, the Hebrews were not also uh, used as human lubricant. Okay, under these rollers of 30 ton building blocks. Okay, the work of the Hebrews was actually as makers of mud brick. Right? They, they dug and restored waterways and canals, and they were the builders of the great cities in Egypt. The Israelites are most identified as the builders of those two great stores cities, Pitom and Ramses, all right, up in the area of Goshen. And that, of course, is where the great Hebrew enclave of Avaris had been in existence beginning from a few years from the time of Joseph. A stores city simply means that it was a regional supply depot. It was a distribution center. Okay, And in this case, these cities served both the civilian population and the military, the Egyptian military, and they were strategically located uh, in Goshen because it was nearest to their eastern border. Okay. Now, thanks to the brilliance of Egyptian science, culture, and art, and the tremendous skill and work ethic of these Israelites, Egypt became a world-class society. Right? And we could talk for days on end and examine the amazing civil engineering accomplishments of Egypt, but that really doesn't fit the purpose of this class. Suffice it to say 
that the grandeur of Egypt at its peak has not been surpassed to this very day, in my estimation. The backward and poor society that's Egypt today bears no resemblance to the Egypt in the time of Moses. Okay. It's also good as a foundation for our study to understand that Egypt at that time was the breadbasket of the world. Okay. And what irony that is, considering that their annual rainfall in Egypt was almost non-existent. Okay. Rather, it's the function of the Nile that Egypt had such incredible food sources. Okay. The Nile would overflow annually and deposit rich, fertile silt on the fields surrounding its banks. Irrigation systems were built since time immemorial to water these fields. And later, yet even before the time of the Israelites, canals were built such that their banks would also overflow along with the Niles. It was a way to expand and extend this vast network of fields beyond the Nile River and take advantage of all of its benefits. Well, sometime late in Joseph's career as vizier of Egypt, several artificial lakes were built for water storage, for use in agriculture, for, for use to water the growing herds of cattle, which, by the way, the Egypt much preferred over, Egyptians much preferred over sheep, and for household use for the expanding population. In fact, there are waterways named after Joseph, still with his name on those waterways today in Egypt. Now let me end tonight by saying that at the time of the Israelites in Egypt, it was a land of plenty and of beauty and of art. It was a land to be envied. When in Exodus we find the Israelites complaining about their discomfort out in the wilderness of Sinai, we'll also hear them longing for their life back in Egypt. Of course, not the forced labor part, right? but the certainty of food and shelter and being part of this magnificent and familiar culture. And next week we'll begin chapter 1 of Exodus. That'll do it for tonight.